Good morning. If you would open up to Genesis chapter 6, Genesis 6, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can find that in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 5. Genesis chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, uh, that Pew Bible in front of you, you are welcome to take. That's our gift to you as a church, and uh, we'd encourage you to read it uh, and, um, and uh, enjoy the good news that you can find in there. I'm going to read now from Genesis chapter 6 all the way through to the end of chapter 7. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten. And store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days... I will send rain on the earth, 
for 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and arose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the water. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole of heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. This is God's living and active word. Let's go to him now in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for this time. Father, for your perfect word, which is able to give us life, it is able to convict us of sin, piercing down into the depths of our hearts and exposing therein the areas of our lives where we need to repent. Father, we pray that you would allow us to do so. And by your grace, draw us closer to the safety that can be found in Christ and Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we move further and further away from Eden, east of Eden, we see and, and we read a movement deeper and deeper into depravity. What Adam and Eve ushered into the world was not just the fall and original sin. Now, Genesis seems to be portraying sin as a ravenous cancer violently deforming the image of God in man. After Cain's murder of Abel, we saw last week the rapid decline in morality among the descendants of Cain. Cain's great-great-grandson introducing polygamy into the world, boasting in his ability to kill men and get away with it. But we also saw last week that in the midst of a very corrupted world, God was still at work. God's electing grace was working in and through the descendants of Seth. These were men who, as Genesis 5 says, called upon the name of the Lord. They confessed God. These 
descendants of Seth worshipped God, and the best among them were even said to have walked with God. But if you remember, we seemed to argue that this, this delineated separation between the godless sons of Cain and the godly sons of Seth, this delineation would not continue. Genesis 6 seems to imply that these two genealogies, which were separated by how they lived and who they lived for, were now intermingling. The godly started marrying the ungodly. Or as Genesis 6-2 puts it, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. All things being equal, I think that's a responsible, contextually grounded interpretation of what we make of the sons of God in Genesis 6-2. Especially when we see Luke, later in the Gospel of Luke chapter 3, refer to Seth and Adam as sons of God. But, I want you to at least be aware of another valid interpretation. One that I'm also very sympathetic to. I think even some of our other elders hold this position themselves, and it makes biblical sense. That's the view that the sons of God, in verse 2, is not the godly descendants of Seth, but rather fallen angels. You've heard this view, I'm sure. Demons who are taking women and bearing children through them. Strange and powerful descendants, which verse 4 seems to refer as the Nephilim, the mighty men of old. Certainly this view, if you've never encountered it before, might cause you to raise an eyebrow. It sounds a bit bizarre, fallen angels sleeping with human women. That seems incredible for me to buy into. But that kind of immediate reaction, I think, might actually reflect a materialism that tends to doubt anything spiritual. In other words, if you can believe that the Creator could unite Himself to a human nature in the virgin's womb, it shouldn't be a stretch to see the possibility of fallen angels taking women as their wives. So what evidence is there that this might be the case? That the sons of God are really demonic fallen angels? Well, first, perhaps most persuasively, there are a number of New Testament passages which seem to say that that was the case. For instance, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19-20, through 20, alludes to Christ preaching upon his death to the spirits in prison who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now, the word used there for spirits is used in the Bible only to describe supernatural beings. Of course, you've got to ask, what was it that they didn't obey that led to them being imprisoned? And it's most likely that they didn't obey their intended celibacy as angels. Uh, Jesus himself says that in heaven, human beings will be like the angels in heaven in that they will not marry. There's no marriage and thus no sex in heaven. Therefore, it seems that these fallen angels gave that up to come and tempt and use human women. Side note, if you're here this morning as somebody new to the church and an unbeliever and you've just heard, wait, there's no sex in heaven, I'm out of here, uh, let me just push back really quickly. One, that might mean you've made an idol out of sex. Two, it's a little bit uh, like kids talking to their parents about the uh, fruitfulness and joys of marriage and the parent trying to explain to their four-year-old toddler, it's amazing, it's great, and all the kid wants to know is, well, are there Legos involved? No, no, there's no Legos. It's better than Legos. Once you become an adult, you don't care about Legos. Your wife or your husband is infinitely greater than Legos. 
Uh, so do us who are saying, wait, there's no sex in heaven? Uh, I think we don't get how great being in the presence of Jesus Christ in heaven really is. Furthermore, in 2 Peter 2, we see Peter again. He seems to reference these same fallen angels, and, and Peter connects them to the flood. He says, quote, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, he seems to connect the two. Jude writes this about fallen angels. And he writes about their perverse sexual desires, which is intriguing. He says, quote, that the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. A Jude seems to connect the sinful sexual activity of Sodom and Gomorrah as equivalent and on the same basis of what the angels did. In other words, the New Testament seems to be reading Genesis 6 and seeing the sons of God as fallen angels. Indeed, the very phrase, the sons of God, is even used in Job to refer to angels. Therefore, it's not outside the realm of possibility to see here in Genesis 6 a very wicked society Indeed, a culture entirely infected and run by the sexual lusts of demons. And this may actually fit with the overall scheme of what Genesis is doing, too. If you remember the promise of a Messiah, if you remember that promise of the one who would crush the head of the serpent, he was to come through the seed of the woman, well, then perhaps here Satan's desire was to corrupt humanity so much that that promise could not be fulfilled. So, whether we see Genesis 6, verse 2 as describing the godly sons of Seth, as we argued last week, or you understand the sons of God to be impure fallen angels, I think either choice can be supported biblically. It's the effect, though, that we really want to look at in this text. The question raised by this passage is, what kind of world existed at the time of Noah? What kind of world existed at the time of Noah? And then in light of that, how does God respond to that world? How does God respond to that world? The answer to the first question, I think, is abundantly clear. The world which existed in the days of Noah was exceedingly wicked. Humanity was totally depraved. Look at verses 5 through 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. As bad as our world can sometimes get, I think the description we see here is something far worse, that every intention of the thoughts of every heart was only evil all the time. 
thankfully. I, I just don't think that that's the case with most of our neighbors and, and most people throughout the world. I was discussing this with a friend yesterday morning. I, I, I'm thankful for my neighbors across the street that live uh, uh, in my neighborhood. I don't think they're believers, but I'm not afraid of them. They will help me if I need sugar on a Saturday morning or if I need them to help out with something. Uh, they don't think evil thoughts all the time. Are we sinful? Absolutely. Is there evil? I think we'd be fools to, to argue that there's no evil people at all. But that all people are only thinking evil continually? No. The world in Noah's day seems closer to the kind of anarchy-ridden, post-apocalyptic movies we'd see on a Hollywood film than anything we've known today. It seems to be an overly violent and overly sexualized culture. Why do I say that? First, the way Moses describes how the sons of God, whoever you understand them to be, how they, in verse 2, went after women solely based upon what they saw. And as a result, they, they took, it says, as their wives, any they chose. It, it, it reads like a society driven by lust, and, and women were, were seen as mere objects to be taken, not people made in the image of God to be loved and cared for. Indeed, the, the language used here Moses uses the exact same language of how Eve saw that the fruit was good to look at, and then she took it and ate. She made decisions not based on what God had said, but based on what she desired. And so they did in Noah's day. They saw, they wanted, and so they took. It was also an incredibly violent culture. Look at verses 11 through 13. Twice he repeats the word violent, Three times he repeats the word corrupt. See that? Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Here then was the life in the days of Noah. Again, the, the, the further away we get from Eden, the more immoral and decayed humanity and human society seems to get. Indeed, the effects of sin are so horrendous. So what was God's response? Well, first look at how Moses describes God's reaction to humanity's utter wickedness. In verse 6, we get a glimpse, I think, into God's heart. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now, to be sure, I think the language used here is analogical. It's, a, it's an analogy. God does not regret like we regret. Right? He didn't like pull out his proverbial hair and think, ah, I made a mistake. Now, in fact, I, I think none of what was happening here on earth had taken God by surprise at all. He's timeless and eternal. He knew exactly the details of what was going to happen even before the creation of the world. The language here is figurative. It's meant to convey something true about God, namely that God is grieved by sin. It's strong figurative language, what theologians would refer to as anthropopathic language, meant to show us a kind of emotion that we can't really attribute to God, but, but God is still emoting this hatred of sin, how opposed God is to what is happening on earth. What's the result then of this grief? 
Well, God responds with the declaration of irrevocable judgment. Verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Here's a judgment of the complete annihilation of all humanity. The destruction of mankind and, and all the things associated with man's rule over nature, right? All the animals, all the earth and its vegetation. God's judgment would be a complete judgment due to man's sin. A few things to note here. We cannot escape the reality that God judges sin. Here's this account right at the beginning of Scripture. An early reminder about God's eternally valid anger over sin. This reminds us that God is holy, that He's just, that the violent and those who live to oppress others, that they will not escape the just and watchful eyes of God. But this also reminds us that when we see God show grace and mercy, it is never a weak mercy. Lots of people show grace. Lots of people show mercy only because they're ever too frightened to show justice. Right? They, they, they always forgive because they don't have the backbone to stand up for what's right. But not so with God. When we see God show grace and God show mercy throughout the pages of Scripture, that mercy now stands in stark contrast with God's sure judgment behind it. The definition of mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And we need to be clear here. The flood and the annihilation of all mankind was a deserved judgment. That's something the Bible is clear about. And we as Christians need to be clear about. We as sinful men and women, we do not deserve God's grace. Heaven is not our default home. I've been meeting with some folks throughout the week working through the book of Romans, And Paul, who wrote that book, is absolutely clear there about our perilous position before God. He says, all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and therefore all people deserve God's wrath and judgment. In one sense, that's what this passage is all about. Parents, this is good for us to bring up with our kids. When you're working your way through your children's Bible and the story of Noah and the ark comes up and, and the kid's Bible wants to make the story about Noah building a little arky ark carrying all the animals, don't let that be the story. Teach your kids about God's judgment. Teach them that God is holy and that he judges sin because it's only there when they, when we get that there's a problem will they ever get that there's good news to that problem, the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Do you see God's saving grace in this story at all? Better believe it. In fact, I think it's right there, the the spotlight uh, is focused on, on this grace. Against the dark backdrop of God's judgment, I think we see the brightness of God's mercy and grace. Look how this mercy begins with God in verse 8. Right after God promises that Universal judgment will ensue. Moses says that God found favor with Noah. Now, to be sure, Noah will prove to be a sinful man. We'll see that clearly next week. So we're not to assume that the favor Noah receives is because Noah is without sin. I think Noah is a sinner 
but he's a sinner who is also a recipient of God's divine grace. And the evidence for that is that Noah believes God. That's at least what we see in verse 9. See? Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, later, Moses will write about Abraham as a man who believes God. And simply because Abraham believed God, God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. In other words, in Genesis, God sees men as righteous not because of any inherent righteousness in themselves, but because these men believe in and trust in God. Indeed, this is exactly how the author in Hebrews sees Noah's righteousness. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, we read, By faith, Noah, being warned by God, concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Noah was an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Hebrews sees Noah's righteousness as something imputed to him by God simply because of his faith. In keeping with the book of James, though, Noah was counted as righteous, yes, by faith alone, but his faith wasn't not alone. He believed and was counted righteous by faith alone, but his faith wasn't alone. What do I mean? That is, Noah lived out his faith in righteous obedience. That's what Hebrews says. Noah, being warned by God, in reverent fear he constructed an ark. Here's why that's important for us, just in case you're missing the point. There are many people who say, I believe in God, I believe in God, I believe in God. And you know they don't really believe in God because their life never lives in obedience to God. Do you see the connection? Your obedience is evidence that you really do believe. That's what we see in Genesis 6, verses 14 through 22. In the midst of a a violent and corrupt society, and on the eve of coming judgment, a judgment that was frankly hard to believe, God commands Noah to build an ark. And look at how Moses describes for us, the reader, what went into building the ark. The materials that are used in verse 14, the uh, dimensions of it in verse 15, The layout of the ark in verse 16. Who was to come inside the ark in verses 18 through 21. Why such elaborate detail? Uh, Why spill so much ink here uh, on on why this ark needs to be this way? And I, I think this is a picture to us of Noah's faith at work. We see here Noah's obedience. Even in the minutest of details... Thus we see a picture of what faith, of of what walking with God really looks like. You see verse 22? Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Faith evidences itself in a desire to obey all that God commands us. Even in those little things that may not make much sense to us, or perhaps they seem just trivial. Really, Lord, you want me to use pitch? Uh, There's the stickier stuff over here. No, God said pitch. Okay, but gopher wood. I I think this is better wood. It's easier to cut down. No, I said gopher wood. Here's a picture of what it means to walk with God. Friends, do you believe in God? You may say you do, but does your life show that you really do? 
Does your life show that you obey God as a response of your belief in who God is? Would your wife or kids see you living faithfully before God in those tiny details that maybe the rest of us in public don't get to see? Indeed, Noah's life of walking with God seems to also have been an evangelistic life. Surrounded as he was by a morally corrupt and sexually violent culture, verse 9 tells us that Noah was blameless in his generation. That is, even the ungodly people around him couldn't indict him on any charges. When they saw Noah, they knew something was different. It was evident that Noah didn't live like everyone else. Again, Hebrews 11 tells us that as Noah painstakingly constructed the ark, his work served to condemn the world. In other words, the way he lived his righteous life called those who knew him to leave the way that they lived and to come and believe in the God that Noah knew. But they didn't. Their hearts were hardened and they refused to give up the corrupt and violent lifestyles. And so Noah's evangelistic life was a means of condemning their unbelief. 2 Peter 2.5 actually calls Noah a herald of righteousness. You can almost imagine Noah working hard all day on this, this thing called an ark. Something no one had ever seen before. And each day as the crowds gathered to watch crazy old man Noah, his family building this thing, Noah would stop working and, and maybe go and stand up on top of some cut gopher wood and he'd start heralding and preaching the gospel. He'd preach about the coming judgment of God. He'd preach about their need to repent and believe. And he'd preach about the salvation that could be had by trusting in God and the ark that he was providing. For 120 years, Noah would build and he would be a herald. He would preach the gospel. But alas, at the end of each day, the crowds would always leave. And in the end, it was only Noah and his family. The opening paragraph of chapter 7 contained God's final words to Noah just prior to the flood. The instructions anticipate the sacrificial worship Noah would offer at the end of the flood when humanity would have its new beginning. They would offer worship to God because God, through judgment, was saving humanity. This was God's salvific work. In fact, Moses makes this explicit in verse 16. You see that? As the rains be, begin to fall and, and the earth begins to, to fill up with water, who is it that shuts and secures the ark? It was the Lord who shut Noah in. Do you see? God is saving Noah from his own judgment. In the end, Noah couldn't save himself. He, he couldn't escape from God's coming wrath. He had to trust in God to save him. And oh, how true that still is of us today. I say this almost every other week. The most important question we could ever ask is how can I escape the just wrath of God? And the amazing answer is that God provides the answer to that problem, his son Jesus Christ. As the rains fell, we also see waters erupt from out of the depths of the earth in verse 11. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and, and the windows of the heavens were opened. Rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Verses 17 through 20, we see the universal nature of this flood. It, it, it seems to cover everything. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. 
The waters increased and and bore up the ark, and it, it rose high above the earth. Verse 18, the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. The language is violent, portraying the, the wildness of this flood as well as the totality and the depth of it all. Over the highest mountain on earth, the waters rise another 30 feet. So not only do we see a universal flood, but this also implies, and I think we see this, a universal death. Other than Noah and his family, there were no survivors. Verse 21, And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and livestock, beasts, and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth. And all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, it died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. Friends, the picture is clear. It is one of total universal death. Were there people who shook their fists at heaven? Angry at God because he did not warn them? Did those who mocked Noah and his preaching bitterly remember him as they gasped for air trying to keep afloat? As Will read for us earlier from 1 Peter 3, God's patience waited in the days of Noah as the ark was being prepared. 120 years, Noah had been warning mankind for over a century that God's judgment was coming. Again, as Will read earlier from 1 Peter, the New Testament reminds us that this account of the flood in Genesis serves to remind us now that another judgment, a final judgment, is indeed coming. And friends, we've had over 2,000 years of God's patience extended to us since Jesus' death and resurrection. Noah and his family found safety in the ark And Jesus, through his church, now calls out to the entire world, offering us all now safety in him. Christ is the ark of safety. As the judgment of God rains down upon him, and he takes the brunt of God's wrath as he hung upon the cross, we who are found in Christ can weather the storm of that coming judgment and find peace with God. Like Noah, who would become a new humanity, so now in Christ we find new life and will also become a new humanity in the new heavens and the new earth. Earlier this morning we celebrated the baptism of our sister Esther, a beautiful symbol of her faith in Christ and of her now being born again to a new life in Jesus. When the Apostle Peter read Genesis, he saw that the flood was as a type of Christian baptism. The flood was a picture of baptism. He says, quote, Baptism, which corresponds to the flood, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For Peter, it is only in and through Jesus that we escape the condemnation of God. And the the assurance of that is seen in the symbol of baptism. Esther should find assurance in the fact that the church has said, yes, we see your faith in Jesus. We will baptize you. 
She now has a God-ordained appeal for a good conscience, a sign that represents her actually being found in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never believed in Jesus, friends, you should have no assurance that you will escape the coming judgment of God. It was through water by the Word of God that the world that then existed was deluged with water and it perished. But Peter says, by that same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. Friends, I'm pleading with you. Do not walk away from the gospel like those men and women in Noah's day walked away from him. The door to the ark is open now. Jesus says, I am the door. Any who enters by me, he will be saved. And if you trust in Jesus, God will shut you in and keep you secure. You will never lose. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus Only life everlasting. 